Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Hal Grotevant and Dr. Ruth McCroy about why you should consider open adoption and how to do it well. Here's a taste of what you're going to hear. I'm Dawn Davenport, the Director of Creating a Family. We are the National Adoption and Infertility Education and Support Organization, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We are a weekly radio show, and we utilize the podcast model to make sure that you can automatically hear about each episode. We suggest that you subscribe to our show, and you can do that at either iTunes or on the radio page of our site, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer doesn't have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medications through Faring's Heartbeat Program. To learn more, visit heartbeatprogram.com, or, of course, you can talk to your doctor to get more information as well. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in adoption and infertility, as well as the new resources that we add to our site each week, and we add Five new pieces of information and resources, that is our goal, uh, and we do that every week. Uh, so sign up for our newsletter to find out about what we're doing. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to pre- and post-adoptive families and to the patient community. We have... Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been providing adoption services for more than 50 years with offices in California, Colorado, South Carolina, and Kentucky. Nightlight provides international, domestic, foster, and embryo donation and adoption services through its Snowflake Embryo Adoption Program. We also have independent adoption centers whose mission is to provide open adoption placement and counseling to birth and adoptive families. They work with families in all 50 states and are fully licensed in California, New York, Florida, Texas, well, and actually more than that, So, and more, let me just say. And Hopscotch Adoptions, they are a national adoption agency with offices in North Carolina and New York, placing children from Bulgaria, Georgia, Ghana, Armenia, Morocco, Serbia, and Ukraine. And the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson, a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproduction, reproduction law. We also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption or infertility service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, uh, uh, types of adoption, just a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. By using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. 
Well, today's show is a very special one for me because I am getting to interview two people who I have followed from afar for a long time, followed their research, and have such intense respect for that I am just absolutely thrilled to have them as our guest today. Open adoption is now the norm for most domestic infant adoptions in the United States, and it's becoming more common for foster care adoptions and international adoptions. Our guests today are Dr. Hal Grotevant and Dr. Ruth McRoy. They are longtime researchers on the impact of openness on all members of the adoption triad, and they are the lead researchers of the Minnesota-Texas Adoption Research Project, which if you have uh, followed my blog or uh, have been uh, on our uh, the research pages of our uh, research section of the Creating a Family site, you will know that I have, or we have, I should say, referred to the Minnesota-Texas Adoption Research Project on a number of occasions, and it's one that I have followed avidly for many years now. Dr. Grotevant is the Rudd Family Foundation Chair in Psychology at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and Dr. McGroy is on the faculty at Boston College School of Social Work in Boston, Massachusetts. These two literally wrote the book on open adoption and how we currently practice adoption in the United States. Welcome, Dr. McGroy and Dr. Grotevant, to Creating a Family. Thank you. Thank you. I am so glad to have you with us. Uh, I, I want to start with a uh, – I think I, I think most people now who have been involved in adoption at all – um, have the idea of what openness is, but I also find that there's a great deal of misunderstanding about what openness is in adoption. So I think it might help if we start with something as boring as, as what you a definition or what you consider openness. Dr. McCroy? Well, we typically look at adoptions along a continuum, basically looking at those that are completely closed, something that we commonly call confidential adoptions in which there's no real contact between birth and adoptive families, uh, and then moving to another form of contact that we often refer to as mediated adoptions in which there may be an exchange of information that is occurring through an agency, exchange of information between birth and adoptive families, maybe it's a gift and the like, letters, pictures, that kind of thing, but not direct contact. And then moving further along that continuum, we think in terms of fully disclosed open adoptions, which refers to the actual uh, contact, direct contact between birth families and adoptive families. And I think that when we nowadays when we talk about openness, I think most people are thinking in terms of the fully disclosed, as you say, open uh, type adoption. Um, although, and, and another word for mediated we sometimes hear is semi-open. Um, so, it, it, and as you point out, it is along a continuum, uh, which is going to make answering this next question more difficult. Because what I'd like to know is what percentage of adoptions that are occurring now in, in the 2014 area are open in the United States, Dr. Grotevant, uh And you can, if you want to try to break it out by mediated and fully disclosed, that would be fine as well. Well, as you as you indicated, that's a really difficult question to answer, and partly because within the adoptions that we consider fully disclosed, there are all kinds of variations in terms of how frequently people have contact, uh, what kinds of contact they have, whether it might be by uh, you know by mail or by email or by Skype or by some kind of direct communication like that. 
um, and who actually has contact. So there, there's a lot of variability within the group of fully disclosed adoptions. Um, we don't have a lot of good data on this, but the best data that I could find is from a recent uh, survey conducted by the Donaldson Adoption Institute in which they surveyed 100 adoption agencies around the country who were doing infant adoptions. And they found that really among that, that 100, only about five of them were still doing confidential or closed adoptions. And uh, about 55% of the placements were fully disclosed. So in other words, that placement, um, there were these contacts being made. My assumption is that oftentimes um, at the time of placement, the birth mother or birth family or some of the birth relatives actually met the adoptive parents. But what happens after the placement is really up to the people involved. So they may decide that they want to, you know, that they want to continue having frequent contact, that they want to stay in touch with exchanging pictures and things, as, as Ruth was saying, or they may decide at that point that, you know, that they want to have occasional contact um, and they kind of see how it goes. So the actual way it plays out over time is left up to the individuals involved. Right, and, and, and actually very few states have uh, enforceable, where whatever contracts are made about adoption, very few states um, allow uh, that to be upheld, uh, legal, to be enforced. Do you happen mm -hmm. to know, uh, Dr. Grodvant, what uh, number of states uh, enforce uh, openness agreements between uh, birth and adoptive families? I don't know the exact number, but I know that here in Massachusetts uh, <clears throat> there are legally enforceable contact agreements that are made at the time of placement. And people may not fully understand what that means because if, for example, the, either the adoptive parents or the birth parents um, do not keep that initial agreement in terms of how frequently they would have contact or what kind of contact they would have, uh, they can they can go to court, and they can actually involve a mediator or something like that, but the court cannot overturn the adoption. So the adoption is final, uh, period. Um, but I think what would frequently happen is if, uh, within a particular family, if the agreement were not being upheld by one party or the other, they would probably go to some kind of mediation, and then there would be discussion about you know, why was this happening, uh, what's really in the best interest of the child, and how can they work together uh, over time. Right. We're going to talk about some of that uh, later on, about the need for support to help people navigate some uh, some of the open adoption relationships. We received right. a question that I, I really like this question because I have wondered this as well. It is from a, a, a well-known adoption attorney. He says, uh, I have always been curious about the role that geography plays in prospective adoptive parents' receptivity to open adoption. It seems to me that parents are predisposed to one viewpoint or another, often based on where they live. Perhaps it's the adoption education provided by certain agencies, various state laws, or adoptive parents' previous life exposure to one model or the other. I tend to see a prevalence of open adoptions when adoptive parents reside in the American West and in Canada, and closed adoptions when adoptive parents re, uh, reside in the American Southwest. Am I imagining this, or is there a geographical influence? Uh, and I would add to that that I've, uh, I, that I've also seen 
a greater receptivity to openness in the upper Midwest and the Northeast, uh, and then and, and throughout the South, perhaps less uh, or more concern about it. Uh, but anyway, are his observations? Do you guys see that, uh, Dr. McRoy? Uh, I haven't seen that, especially, you know, related to particular states. I think it would be interesting to look at. And I had uh, reviewed a paper not long ago that was done by the Child Welfare Information Gateway that specifically looked at post-adoption contact agreements. And it would be interesting to look at that further because in 2011 there were about 26 states and the District of Columbia that had allowed uh, written and enforceable contact agreements in all types of adoptions. And so that may have something to do with that perspective in examining those particular states, but I personally have not seen that kind of a variation. Do you um, do you have a – has the Child Welfare uh, Gateway, have Information Gateway, have they uh, posted that to research? And if so, uh, can you send me a link? And, and if that's the case, I will, if you are able to. I'll uh, include it on my blog tomorrow, so, uh, which is going to be about the subject of this show. Do you know if they've published yes, it yet? happy to send that to you. Yes. Okay, great. This I'll was try to done back in, in uh, 2011, actually, yes. Okay, great. All right, well, now I, I want to move to one of my favorite topics, and that is talking about the Minnesota-Texas Adoption Research Project, which you guys are so well known for. Um, and, and about the findings of, of, of the research that is ongoing uh, about with this. This research stands out in part because of the length of time that it's been uh, continuing. How long have you been following the participants? Dr. McRoy? Uh, we began the study back in 1987, and here we're now in 2014, almost 2015, and we're continuing to follow the participants. And it's the same participants that you are following? Exactly, yes. At right. that time when we began the study, we had 190 adoptive families, 169 uh, birth mothers, uh, 170 children, and during that time we um, have continued, we made contact with all of them, interviewed them, collected data, and we have attempted to follow all of them through today, frankly. Yes, still today, we're still trying to contact all of them. Throughout the process, typically you lose some participants, but we do still have a core group that we're so interested in continuing to find out their experiences with openness over time. You know, from my perspective, this this project will only become deeper and, and more valid because one of the things that's been uh, painfully lacking uh, is real understanding of, of how adoption affects people throughout their life, uh, both as the adoptive person but, but also as, as adoptive parents and as birth parents. So uh, with each subsequent publication, I, I become even, even more interested. And, and as I mentioned before, you studied all members of the adoption triad, adoptive parents, birth parents, and adoptees. Uh, openness ostensibly began because it was perceived as being better for children. And, and I say ostensibly because there were likely other factors at work as well. But since it was intended primarily to benefit the kids, let's start talking about whether it really does benefit them. So, Dr. Grotevan, if you could, uh, and I realize that you've published tons on this, so what I'm asking is kind of the crib note version here, but uh, what have you found about how different levels of openness affect the adopted people, both as children and now, as you say, as, 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 as adults or young adults? 
Right. Well, let me take you back to the beginning of the study when, and some of the reasons why, why we began. Because at the time when we started, in the mid-1980s, uh, openness was kind of a new concept among people who were in the adoption practice field. The practitioners, especially the, the social workers and some of the people working in the agencies, felt that it would be that it could be really good for the children and for the birth mothers and for the adoptive parents, but the kind of traditional ideas about adoption were quite different. And one of the concerns that people had about the children was that they would grow up being confused. That if they knew who their birth parents were or if they had contact with their birth parents, that they wouldn't know the difference between their adoptive and their birth parents. And they'd think, oh, do I have four parents or three parents or how many parents do I have? And they'd be really confused. So a lot of the questions resolved, revolved around identity and around whether being confused about one's identity could then lead to problems with self-esteem and behavioral adjustment and, uh, you know, all of those kind of things. And I can say, you know, really clearly that one of the results of our study is that the children in these more open adoptions are not confused about who their uh, parents are. They know who their adoptive parents are. They know who their birth parents are. They understand the difference between the two. And they actually, many of them talk about feeling a benefit of having more adults in their life who care about them, you know. Another piece is that, you know, the concern that this confusion uh, might lead to behavior problems or might lead to identity problems. And again, the children um, in in most cases understand this, they're doing fine, and the, some of those initial concerns about open adoption really did not hold water when we looked at them over time. And what are you seeing now? Some of these, I, I, uh, the the study has been ongoing for what now, 27 years, and then the children right. were not all at birth then. So you you have people that you are interviewing now who are in their in their 30s. How in has 30s. yeah how how has the open relationship or or their relationship in general with their birth parents? changed from when they were children when when the level of contact and and uh type of contact was primarily being controlled by their parents to now as adults they're in control of that so uh what are you seeing is it changing and and uh, does it increasing is it decreasing uh is it just leveling out what is what are you seeing now as they are adults uh, and I, I'll direct this back to you Dr. Uh, Grodevan Mm-hmm. Well, as they're becoming adults, I mean, many of them are uh, retaining the, these relationships. So we did not find, for example, that once they turned 18, they stopped having contact with their birth families. I mean, many of them have had contact for many, many years, and but the, the challenge is they're moving you know, beyond adolescence into emerging adulthood and young adulthood and establishing families of their own, is what are these relationships going to look like? And I think one thing we have to to put this in context, think about any kinds of human relationships with relatives or with friends. You know, they change over time as a function of a lot of things like uh, geographical location and closeness. You know, if people live far across the country, just because of that, they're probably going to have less contact than if they live in the same community. Um, or if they're in a really busy or stressful time of their life, they may have less contact than 
if they're in a time of life where they have you know, more flexible time or more opportunities to reach out to other people. So, so in general, their relationships with their birth relatives, birth parents, birth relatives, are like other relationships they might have with other people. They depend on the kind of circumstances that they're in at the time and the kinds of the relationships they have forged. So it's hard to generalize that, you know, the group as a whole uh, has done one thing or the other. But in general, I would say they have maintained the relationships. Some of them have um, become a little bit, uh, have had a little bit less frequent contact, usually because they're raising young families of their own, or they may no longer be close geographically. But that that relationship is still there. And many of them talk about the value of knowing their birth relatives because it gives them that sense of knowing where they came from and who these people are as real people. Because if they didn't know them as real people, there would still be fantasies about what their birth relatives might be like. But in this case, their understanding of their birth relatives is based on this reality. Dr. McRoy, did you study uh, uh, adoptees or families that were uh, in closed adoptions in addition to those that were in open adoptions? Right. We looked at the families as well as the birth parents, and that's what was so unique with, with uh, about our study. We had information from all the parties that were involved, the youth. But were some of the them in closed parents? adoptions? Yes, some they in were. Clo- okay, yeah. Did right. you and see found- a – go ahead. I was going to ask about a distinction between uh, – could you tell a difference in when studying objectively adopted people who were in closed adoptions throughout adolescence and young adulthood and now adulthood uh, versus those who were in open adoptions? Was there was there anything was there any distinction or were they all doing well? Well, we found that there were different kinds of issues for the different parties. For example, um, some of the youth were content with the information that they had uh, about their birth families, and then there were others who were very much wanting more information, and because of the closed adoption, did not have access to that, and that can be a frustrating experience. The other thing to take into consideration is that things changed over time since these families initially adopted, with there being a growing degree of openness offered in most adoptions during this period of time. So when we think about it, the children often were experiencing curiosity, as you might expect them to, if they did not have access to information. Uh, They often had questions in the closed adoptions about why did their parents place them? Why did their birth parents place them for adoption? Um, they often wondered about who were their birth parents? What was, you know, their health histories? What did they look like? And those that did not have contact, of course, had far more questions about birth parents than those who did have contact. It's, and yeah, and if I, had, if I, if, well, yeah, could please I just go add ahead. to that? Yes. Please. So, uh, so as as Ruth was saying, you know that the the many of the ones in in the more closed adoptions didn't have this information. They found it frustrating. So, one of the things that we looked at was how satisfied they were with their openness arrangements, and that seemed to be a key factor 
in looking at some of the adjustment outcomes that we found. Now, in general, the ones that were in the more open adoptions were also more satisfied with the arrangements that they had. But if they were dissatisfied, it was usually because they wanted more contact and they couldn't bring it about. Um, I don't think we had any situations in which they were dissatisfied because they had too much contact. Usually, if there if there was any dissatisfaction, it was because they wanted contact, but because of circumstances or you know information or whatever, they couldn't bring that about. So it was the the satisfaction with those arrangements that really made a difference in terms of um, you know how they were doing. And you know the thing that's so interesting to me is that we often speak. It's almost a shorthand, and you can't help but do it. We speak about adopted people as if they're some unified whole and that they would all feel the same way, but they are as diverse a group as any group of humans, and some are, by temperament, uh, just very curious, uh, and and some are uh, are simply just more laid back and just take things as they go. Some are uh, temperamentally um, going to be more likely to be dissatisfied with their lot. It, so, I mean, I would assume you would see the same that there isn't um, a universality uh, uh, of, or, or perhaps, did you find a universality uh, as far as any factor which led uh, towards satisfaction, Dr. Grotevant? No, I think you've stated it well, that there is a lot of variability within our sample. We had some um, some uh, adopted persons who were in more closed adoptions, but they felt very comfortable with that. That's what they grew up with. That's, um, you know, they felt no need for more information. But I would always put a little footnote next to that and say, at this time in their lives, because the other thing we know is that as uh, time goes on and as things change, people change in terms of what they want to know. For example, we found that in our uh, wave of data collection during emerging adulthood, which is kind of in the late 20s and early 30s, um, all of a sudden now people are saying that one of the things they're most curious about is health information and background information, information about uh, health risks and genetic risks and things like that. So as they're beginning to think about marriage, to think about building their own family, these issues are starting to, to arise. And we also found a gender difference there, which was kind of interesting because uh, generally the young women were more interested than the young men, but a number of the young men made comments like, well, I wasn't all that interested, but now I'm engaged or now I've got a girlfriend, and she's saying to me, what do you mean you don't know this information? I, you know, I want you to find out more. So it has a lot to do with their developmental, you know, with where they are developmentally and with the people who are uh, significant to them at that time. And, you know, that you that was going to ask that question later on because I, I often have wondered that, too. We There is a uh, the stereotype that women are more curious and more curious about mm-hmm. their, their, their heritage and their background, their genetics or whatever. Um, and 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 actually, what you found was exactly what the stereotype is. And the right. only reason the guys are getting more interested is because there's a woman they care about who's interested. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as a mother of two daughters and two sons, none of this surprises me. Uh, <laughs> the uh, well, and as uh, Dr. McRoy mentioned, you not only what another very unique thing about the uh, uh, and what is the abbreviation? Is it pronounced MTARP? Is that the abbreviation? 
yes, for the uh-huh. Minnesota yes. okay, MTARP. Well, I have right. used the abbreviation MTARP uh, just to show off, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> see, I wasn't a hundred percent sure if I was saying it right. So now I can show off with with much more confidence. Um, so one of the other unique things about this study is that it studied not only the adopted uh, people and children adoptees but also the birth parents and the adoptive parents. So before we get any further, we ought to talk about what you've generally found uh, about how open adoption uh, affects birth parents. And I think most people probably would assume that open adoptions make it easier for birth parents. Uh, And so what have you found out, uh, Dr. McRoy? Yes, we we're really interested in finding out how birth mothers in different types of adoption adjusted over time, recognizing that a birth parent, for example, who makes the decision to place a child is, in a, especially in a closed or confidential adoption, still, although the child is not physically present, there is still that psychological presence. And it can impact one's real feeling, sense of loss about the placement of the child. And so it was really interesting to explore outcomes, to look at birth parents, birth mothers who had ongoing contact with the adoptive family, with the child, to see to what extent they were still experiencing that level of grief and were there changes in that based upon amount of contact. So we look specifically at issues in terms of their feelings of of guilt, of sadness, of regret, um, sometimes anger about the placement. And we found that those birth mothers who were having contact with the adoptive family were those who experienced what we call less unresolved grief than those who had had no contact. We were, um, when we went back and re interviewed them at wave two, we also found that those that were in fully disclosed adoptions, in which there was contact with the adoptive family and the child, they, can, they continued to have less unresolved grief than those that were in confidential adoptions. We found that they tended to be, um, to have much more satisfaction with that kind of contact that they were having, just knowing something about the child, that the child was okay, helped them resolve some of their sense of loss and grief. I think we should mention that, if I remember correctly, this study only looked at birth mothers, not birth parents in general, not birth fathers. Is that correct? That's correct. We had birth mothers, yes. And also, I remember at some point reading that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, this study, most of the birth mothers were what people, what used to be more the typical uh, birth mother, a young uh, a, a girl in her teens, uh, unmarried, who uh, became pregnant. Uh, is that the is is that? Am I correct that that's the was what the majority of your um, uh, mom, birth moms were? Yes, most were young uh, teenage. The, you know, the range at that particular time. That has changed to some extent now in terms of those that are placing children for adoption. But in our sample of the 169 birth mothers, the average age was about 19.3. They ranged in age from 14 to 36 
at the time of adoption. When we collected data at wave one, they were between uh, 21 and 43 years of age uh, with an average age of about 27. And when we recontacted them for the second wave of data collection, they ranged from uh, the age of 29 to 54 with an average age of about 35. Yeah, so we followed them long enough to see when they have reestablished a life uh, after uh, adoption to see how they have fared. Now, of all the members of the adoption triad, uh, uh, adoptee, birth parent, and adoptive parent, the one that I think most people would assume would benefit the least or even perhaps be harmed by open adoption would be the adoptive parents. Dr. Grotevant, what has the MTARP uh, project found, uh, research found, about how open adoptions affect the adoptive parents? One of the big concerns uh, raised initially and in, you know before the study about effects on adoptive parents was that they would feel that they're that they could never kind of become the full parents to their child that there would always be somebody kind of looking over their shoulder um, that they would not have this sense of entitlement to to take on being the full parents of the child, especially since many of them had experienced all, almost all I would say of our adoptive parents. Um, chose adoption because of infertility. So for many of them, it had been a journey of quite a few years, oftentimes um, you know, trying different kinds of assisted reproductive technology that may or may not have worked and so on. So they're entering into the adoption process already, you know, having felt um, you know, stressed by, by kind of moving into this way of creating a family. And then the concern was, well, if they have to deal with birth mothers and birth relatives, that that would just make their life so much um, more difficult. So one of the things we asked about at our first wave was the degree to which the adoptive parents feared that the birth mother would come back and reclaim her child because there were these stereotypes that people have about, you know, the birth mother waiting behind the potted palm in the shopping mall, you know, and that she would jump out from behind the palm tree and take her child back. And what we found was quite uh, uh, quite opposite of that stereotype. The, uh, the least fear of reclaiming was found among the adoptive parents who had the more open adoptions. And it was because their, they had an actual relationship with the birth parent with the birth mother, and it was based on a real relationship and real conversations. And many of them had actually had discussions about this, you know, where they, where the, um, maybe the one or the other would bring it up and the birth mother would say, well, why would I come and take my child back? I placed my child with you. I entrusted them to you. And so you are their parent. And so I want to have a relationship and, and make sure that, you know, and know that my child is thriving and doing well and all of that, but you're you're the parent. And so the least amount of fear was among the parents in the open adoptions. The greatest fear was in those who had the, the closed adoptions or the confidential adoptions because their ideas about birth parents were based on stereotypes, like the birth parent who's going to pop out from behind the potted palm at the shopping mall. So so really, when they had a chance to have a real relationship, that was beneficial for the adoptive parents because then they they knew you know what was realistic. The other thing is that the adoptive parents, even though in an open adoption there is communication and contact and so on, the adoptive parents are the full legal parents 
of the child. And so the adoptive parents, in a sense, are the ones who can set boundaries, who can, you know, make decisions about, you know, whether we're actually going to, you know, get together on this holiday or not, or whether we're going to, you know, share this particular event. So uh, over time, the adoptive parents in our study actually felt quite empowered that they were able to, um, you know, manage that relationship. But what it does do is it means that these adoptions um, require work because they mean that you're entering into a more complicated set of relationships with more people, and it requires communication, it requires flexibility, and those kinds of things. Um, but, But in general, the adoptive parents who were in the more open adoptions um, were very happy about it, and you know, I don't think any of them said, "I wish I hadn't done this." And you were speaking of of when they you were talking about parents feeling empowered that they were the ones, the full parents, and the ones <laughs> making the decision. One of the things that we hear from uh, adoptive parents who have adult or emerging adult uh, children. And, and as I think back, most of them were not, uh, the children were in uh, a semi-open or closed adoptions. And the fear of these parents is that when their children age, and, and well, even if they're in an open adoption, let me back up, and regardless of the level of, of openness, the, per, the, parental, the adoptive parents' fear is that as their children age and start taking over the relationship with their birth parents, that the adoptive parents will be, for lack of a better word, left behind, or or it, it somehow that that in this sharing process that the uh, the adoptive parents will have less less time, less something with the uh, with the children. What have you seen um, when you're talking with adoptive parents and adoptees? in their 20s and, and now 30s. What are you seeing? Are parents, are adoptive parents being left out uh, uh, from the time or from the relationship? Uh, Dr. McRoy? Well, I, I think it's important to note that, you know, each family is different. But I think that the majority of the families that we have seen in this study that we've worked with um, this did not happen. There was ongoing contact, but there was continued uh, close relationships with the adoptive family. I recognize that sometimes that's a fear, that the child will be more associated with the birth family over time than the adoptive family, but that's not what we're finding in this. There's a, in, in many cases, there's an ongoing relationship because it's, it becomes an extended family. And so the adoptive family, birth family, child, now adult, they're all connected, and when we think about that child now adult, often has children of their own, and they may be able to blend all these families together. So we really didn't find that kind of a concern that that emerged in in this sample. In your in your families that uh, were closed, take closed, are very limited contact. What did you find as far as the uh, percentage of of adoptees? that chose to search and find their uh, birth parents when they reached the age of 18 or beyond. Dr. Grotevant? Uh I can't give you an exact number on that, but uh, 
Definitely, there were some that did want to do that. Many of the, and I would say maybe even most, of the adoptive parents of the uh, children in the closed adoptions told their kids that when they turned 18, they would help them search for their birth relatives if they wanted them to. Um, I think sometimes we we give a lot of almost magical weight to turning 18, you know, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of, of you know hype about it, a lot of discussion about it. But if you think about it, uh, in, in I mean, it is a marker of maturity, and certain legal things become possible and everything. But generally speaking, there's much more continuity in uh, young and adolescent and young adult development. I think sometimes we also think because we study adoption or adoption is our world, we think that that's the driving force or the main thing going on in all of these families. But what we found, especially in the families with the teenagers and the emerging adults and college students, is that they have busy lives. They have a lot of stuff going on. You know, the kids are involved in school and in school activities and playing soccer and being in the band and doing all these other things. And that, yes, adoption is an important piece of what they do, but it's not the only force that drives what's going on in their lives. So for most of these uh, young people, as they move toward and beyond 18, I would say there was a lot of continuity in what they experienced within their adoptive families and even in their relationships with their birth families. Now, did some of them want to search? Yes, some of them did. Some of them actually did um, you know, go to adoption agencies to get information and so on. Um, and oftentimes it was with the blessing of their uh, adoptive parents. You know, and I, I've not seen uh, percentages either uh, anywhere on, uh, but anecdotally, it does seem to me that uh, that maybe certainly over half would uh, have an interest in searching. Now, whether they actually, you know, put the, uh, put the, the 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 elbow grease into actually doing it is another thing, but mm-hmm. but that's also very hard to know because the, the people who are discontent and wanting not discontent in a bad way, but discontent in the sense that they want information they don't have are going to be the ones that we might hear from more likely than those mm-hmm. who are just don't have an interest. So that could certainly sway the. Uh, you know how we um, how we view whether or not most uh, adopted people uh, who don't know information on their uh, birth families are searching for that, are searching to meet them. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Grovant, you mentioned something. Oh, go ahead, Dr. McRoy. I was just going to make one other comment related to that, and that has to do with the with the birth mothers. Um, one of the questions we asked them was to what extent if they lost contact with the family or with the, their child placed for adoption, um, would they, how would they feel if the child reaching adulthood would reach out to them, would try to locate them? And it, I thought that that finding was extremely important and interesting in relation to the question you asked because when we followed them up, many of these birth mothers, majority, were really saying that they felt positively if the child with whom they may have had contact, lost contact, or had never had contact, sought them out and wished to search, they would feel positively about being contacted. And there were actually uh, very few 
that felt ambivalent in any way or neutral, and none felt real negative about it. So they were open to this. So if that contact did decline, maybe it never occurred, they were still open to having that as the child reached adulthood. We do hear people say sometimes, oh, you know, I, I don't want to disrupt the, uh, uh, my child should not search because, or, or, or an adoptee saying, I don't want to search because I don't want to disrupt their life. So that is interesting. Well, we mm-hmm. actually found that on, on kind of all sides of the equation, this issue mm-hmm. about respect, because we found that, you know, as Ruth was saying, many of the birth mothers said they would be very open to this, but they were also very respectful of the family and the, the mm-hmm. young adult. And they were saying, you know, I'm not going to impose myself on them or intrude in their lives or something like that, but if they contact me, I'm open to it. And also some of the young adults said, you know, that I'm, um, you know, that I I want to respect uh, both my birth relatives and what their lives are like and also my adoptive parents because some of them did decide to either defer or go slow or something with this process because they didn't want to hurt their adopted parents. So so in general, I would say uh, on everybody's part, there was a sense of caring about this broader set of relationships and people people were not kind of uh, aggressively trying to intrude into each other's lives. And in fact, it was quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. Dr. Gorvant, you mentioned uh, before, we were talking um, earlier, and you were uh, mentioned something about uh, communication and flexibility. I wanted to talk a little about what you've found, both in your the, the uh, Minnesota Texas Adoption Research Project as well as other research, on what makes for a healthy, mutually satisfying, open adoption relationship for all parties. Right. Well, part of it is that the the parties need to. Uh, I mean, it's like establishing a new relationship with with anybody in a sense with a coworker with a relative with a, a stranger that you've met is that part of that process involves kind of figuring out how close do we want to be and in some cases you know people might get together they might realize that they have this bond through the child and they're happy to facilitate that and to have some contact but interpersonally maybe they don't have a lot in common or they don't feel a need to have a lot of frequent contact. And so they kind of decide, you know, maybe even unconsciously that, well, we're going to have this, you know, not a really close relationship, but it's going to be cordial and so on. Other people may have a different take. You know, they find that when they meet each other, they really click, they really like each other, they have things in common, and they may end up becoming more like a a large extended family. So part of it is allowing that process to take place and for people to kind of feel okay that you don't have to follow one script. Like having an open adoption does not necessarily mean that you become an extended family that takes all of its holidays together. It can instead mean that you have cordial relationships, you share information, you celebrate you know, good times and things and support each other, but it may not be as close. So part of it is being able to kind of give it enough time to figure out what that relationship is going to be like and not to be bound by one particular script. Um, but the the other, so and part of that then depends on communication, right? So it requires that people be able to talk to each other and express, 
you know, their concerns or their needs for more space or more closeness or whatever. And then just logistically, the other thing we found is that contact, because it involves the mundane things of life like scheduling, you know, and deciding how to get together, where to get together, uh, you know, when, um, it means that pe- when people have busy lives, they have to be able to compromise. They have to be able to realize that they may not always, um, you know, they may have to give and take a little bit so that if, if, if you know, somebody's not able to come on one particular weekend, like you can only be so many places on Thanksgiving. And so maybe if you're not able to come on Thanksgiving, then you have kind of a second holiday the next weekend or something like that. So being flexible enough to be, you know, realistic about what's possible is another important ingredient. Let yeah, me I build on that. For, let me build on that for just a minute. Also related to an, the other parties involved, often in this contact, and that is when we re-interviewed our birth mothers for the second wave of data collection. About two thirds of the birth mothers uh, had married, and Many had children. And so those are additional parties often involved in the contact. And when we think about that and the implications of of that as well, we found that most of the birth mothers had disclosed the adoption to their children uh, that they were parenting. And many of those children also had contact with the sibling that had been placed for adoption. And so, and most of them saw that very positively. So when we look at all of these relationships over time, a lot of things have emerged, new relationships, additional children, uh, new potential opportunities for contact. It's important to look at all the parties to see what's happened, the evolution of relationships uh, over time. And as I mentioned, in many of these cases, not only the children, but the children of the birth mother, the ones that she's now parenting, but also sometimes her spouse also involved in the contact. <laughs> right, because she doesn't come alone at that point. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it, open adoption relationships in theory, you know, sound good, but in practice they're often they're often complicated. And one of the things we spend a lot of time here at Creating a Family thinking about is how to support families after adoption in navigating this. What uh, what thoughts do you have on, on how to navigate openness? Dr. McRoy? Well, I think one of the first steps is to prepare families prior to the adoption for these realities letting them know about the evolution of different kinds of relationships over time and that things may, there may be greater contact at certain times with certain parties and less at later times, helping them to understand the realities of how open adoption may play itself out. And I think the preparation is so important the oper- the um, uh, preparation in, so that the families are aware of what can happen as well as birth parents, but also the availability of an opportunity to continue to seek services through the agency about issues that may develop over time. 
having an opportunity to know, you know, to come back and raise those questions and how do I address this particular issue that I was not But I think it's really important to let them know that there would be ongoing uh, counseling available if needed to address issues that might emerge as they sometimes do in any kind of relationships. But making those kinds of host adoption services available to them to so that they could work through any issues that might evolve uh, that are related to the type of openness uh, in the adoption and as it evolves over time. I think it's crucial to have the post-adoption services. <clears throat> Unfortunately, a lot of agencies simply don't have that, and, and families are left alone trying to figure out how to navigate this. Excuse me, I just choked on some tea. Um, one of the things that that it it's not clear, but it it appears in your research that all the birth mothers were mentally stable, healthy, making good life choices. How is openness affected when you've got addiction issues or when you have mental health issues? Dr. Grodemann? Well, I think, you know, when that is the situation, it's important to be realistic about what's possible <laughs> and what's feasible. Um, and, you know, wh- whenever this comes up, I always think back to a story that a colleague of ours, Beth Neal, told. Beth is at the University of East Anglia in uh, Norwich, England, and she's been doing a study of contact after adoption that's followed um, that's followed adoptions from foster care and from situations where children have been removed from their families, and some of them have been removed for uh, issues of mental health or addiction or so on. And I remember the story she told about a family where the birth father who had contact with the child was schizophrenic, but he was on medication for that. And um, one Saturday, the adoptive family, the parents and the child, came to visit him, and they realized pretty quickly when they got there that it was not being a good day for him, that I think the birth father had gone off his meds and it was not being a good situation. And the way the parents responded was very sensitive both to the child and to that birth parent. They said, you know, they kind of withdrew from the situation a little bit. They told the child, you know, this is not the best day for your birth dad. We're going we're gonna to see if we can maybe find out if we can get him some help or whatever, and then, then we'll come back another time, rather than coming to the door and finding this and freaking out and saying, well, we're never going to do this again and so on. Mm-hmm. So part of it is is being sensitive to what the issues are and, and being prepared and being realistic that that sometimes you have to adjust that kind of contact based on the realities of the situation. We see more interest, interestingly enough, by the adoptive parents adopting through foster care here in the U.S. to consider uh, different levels of openness. And I think what you've just Mm -hmm. mentioned, compassion, for one, certainly goes a long way. And to realize that that uh, this is a, a quote from a um, adult adoptee in a blog I did last week. Non-judgmental compassion is is not only a kind thing to do; it's also a good thing to do for your child. The choices that their birth parents have made were not made in a vacuum. That that in fact <clears throat> it could help our children to understand that they did make poor choices, but that these choices were precipitated by perhaps poor parenting uh, that they received or or addiction issues or things like that. 
I think that there's going to be a coming, um, I think that the trend is going to be coming more and more towards adoption, uh, fo- openness in uh, in foster care adoptions. And, and clearly, as you point out, that would be even, even more complicated, but adoptive parents are the parents and will have to set boundaries, uh, but setting them with compassion um, and uh, is, is important. Another area that we see increased interest in openness is in international adoption. And we received a number of questions uh, today uh, from agencies that uh, practice international adoption wanting to know about how this research on openness can be applied in the international setting, both ways that, 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 that it would be similar, but also what are some ways that it would be would it be different for families who have adopted from another country um, to maintain an open relationship, with the obvious one being the logistics, the geography, and, and the cost of getting there, as well as language. Um, Dr. McRoy, any thoughts on openness in international adoption? Well, I think one of the ways in which this is occurring these days has to do with the use of the uh, of social media and the Internet. Mm-hmm. And so if there's not the... Um, opportunity for the direct contact. A lot of times, there's ongoing contact that's occurring online in, for the and, and connections between uh, families and, and you know family members uh, from various countries. And again, whether it is more uh, contact through the media or whether it is direct contact, I strongly suggest that agencies involved in all these types of adoptions be there to provide preparation for families uh, and to learn about and always be there for them as well in terms of providing um, help in terms of post-adoption contact. And that's, a very, that's something very real these days, especially um, that youth themselves are able to make those contacts. You mentioned before, um, you know, adoptions from care with children who, of course, know their birth family members, all mm-hmm. of that. Uh, these are all issues that need to be addressed and to be well aware of and to prepare children and families for making, you know, if those contacts are being made, how to make them as productive and effective as possible. Yeah, an- another thing I'd add to that is that uh, kind of going back to the issue we talked about before in terms of compassion and respect is that there's another dimension involved in international adoptions having to do with understanding the other culture and the potential consequences to birth relatives of, um, you know, engaging in contact or whatever. So it's just important, I think, for the uh, adoptive family from the U.S. or from Western countries to understand the situation and the dynamics of the culture that the birth parents are living in so that they can do this in a respectful and appropriate kind of way. In your study, did you have... Um, birth families and adoptive families that had vastly different economic circumstances or lifestyles or cultural styles. Did you see that or have you have you seen research on that? Because I, I think sometimes our discomfort with other people sometimes is culturally based. And if you're trying to set up a relationship with somebody that you have vastly different economics or vastly different uh, lifestyles, um, does that interfere with um, a healthy, open relationship. Dr. Grodvan? 
Well, one of the interesting changes in practice has been that now it's quite common for uh, expectant mothers to be selecting the adoptive family that her child will go into. So in a sense, that is um, kind of bringing about perhaps a little bit greater compatibility between uh, expectant mm. birth parents and, and adoptive families because there is that kind of selection process that's going on. Um, I mean, one of the biggest differences we saw was in age, that, of course, the birth mothers were considerably mm. younger than the adoptive parents. And so um, that's that's a situation that needs to be navigated as well. Yeah, and that's actually, in some cases now, not as much because the uh, age for the average uh, woman, expectant woman considering adoption is in their 20s, although, as your point, your point's well taken, that most adoptive parents are older than that. I'd right. like to take a moment to thank a couple more of our gold sponsors and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show, as well as all the many resources we have here at Creating a Family, including the resources we have both on open adoption as well as the support we offer for families in, in how to navigate open adoption relationships. We have Children's Connection. They are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas, providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. We also have Spence Chapin. They are a full-service adoption agency, bringing over 100 years of experience to a new direction. They are creating permanent, loving families for children most in need, older children, siblings, and children with special needs. Spence Chapin has eliminated the financial barriers by providing no-fee adoption services for families who can consider opening their lives and their hearts to this very special population. And we have Bethany Christian Services. They provide post-adoption support to adoptees, adoptive parents, and birth parents through branch offices and through their National Post-Adoption Contact Center. The Post-Adoption Contact Center is staffed by licensed adoption competent professionals and is in the, and is available from 8 to 8 uh, on Eastern Time. Also, if you have enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please rate it uh, on as a podcast on iTunes. That is how iTunes uh, knows whether to recommend it. We are number one on iTunes in the subject matter. We'd like to maintain ourselves there. So uh, go to uh, our website or to um, the iTunes and type in the words creating a family, and you can rate us. Thank you so much, Dr. Ruth McRoy and Dr. Hal Grotevant, for being our guests today on Creating a Family. If you want to participate in a discussion of the topics of this show, you can check out my blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org slash blog. To get more information on the Minnesota-Texas Adoption Research Project, they actually have, uh, a, they have pages on the website for that. Um, the, I'm going to say it slowly because the website is um, what they call in the biz an ugly URL, meaning it's not easy to say out loud. The website for the Minnesota-Texas Adoption Project Research Project is, I'm going to say it once and I'm going to spell it out, psych.umass.edu slash adoption. That is psych, P-S-Y-C-H dot U-M-A-S-S dot E-D-U slash adoption. 
and uh, I uh, they will continue to uh, publish in that uh, on that page and show when their their new research is out. And I really strongly recommend that you go there. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we will see you next week. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.